This audio is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, Sirius XM 111. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Mastering Innovation on Sirius XM's Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, Nikolai Zikolko, co-director of the Mac Institute for Innovation Management and professor of management here at Wharton. Now, just as a reminder, we're, of course, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, and the show replays a few times throughout the week. If you have any comments or questions during today's show, please give us a call. Uh, the phone lines are open at one eight four four wharton That's one 942 7866 in the second half of today's show, uh, I'll be joined by Bob Conlon, the president and CEO of Navex Global, a leading legal compliance software company. But now I'm very happy to welcome first Ellen Adamson. Uh, he's a branding and marketing expert and the co-author of the new book, Shift Ahead, How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast-Changing World. Uh, in the book, Ellen looks at the successes and failures of a large number of companies like Toys R Us, Procter & Gamble, Barnes & Noble, HBO, IBM, Ellen, welcome to the show, and you know, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for inviting me. A pleasure to be here. Wonderful. Now, tell us maybe first a little bit about your background, because this is not the first book, right, that you're publishing. Now, I've done a few uh, <laughs> books. They're always great uh, learning experiences. It, it gives me the opportunity to unplug and to do a lot of listening uh, and learning. Uh, my first book was Brand Simple, and since then I've done a couple. But this was a, a little different because it talked about why more and more brands were running into trouble. Yeah, right. So it's going way beyond just the brand, right? Exactly. You know, lots of companies uh, were coming to me when I uh, was at Landor, and the issue wasn't uh, their marketing or their branding, but their, as they say, their value proposition was becoming irrelevant. So no amount of marketing spin was going to dig them out of the ditch. Yeah. And so, of course, as a strategy professor, right, we always have, what is strategy, what is marketing? And I think there's a nice confluence here, right, as you're talking about this. Exactly. You know, two parts brand is your story. And if the story is not relevant, your branding, your advertising and uh, all the other marketing elements don't really work that well. Yeah. So how did you and your co-author, Joel Steckel, sort of come to write this book? Um I had been uh, occasionally uh, lecturing at NYU as an adjunct, uh, and I've done that on and off for years. And we were, uh, uh, I was a guest speaker at a couple times in his class, and we found that the combination of me sharing uh, some of the projects I was working on in real time uh, on this topic and his ability to help turn it into what he calls a teachable moment <laughs> uh -huh. to extract yep. sort of what happened to why it matters and what you can do to prevent uh, perhaps it happening in another situation turned out to be a good left-right mm -hmm. combination. Great. So just tell us a bit maybe about the process, right? So, okay, you sit down in an office, you say, hey, let's write a book. Uh, kind of how did this proceed then? Well, yeah, to some extent we needed, as you know, to do some research. Yeah. And that was another benefit of uh, uh, working with NYU. There were lots of eager interns uh, to help us. Mm -hmm. We ended up talking to more than 100 organizations to you know, find out who was doing it right, who was struggling, uh, what could we learn. Mm -hmm. And so uh, the first nine months was just talking to various companies on various ends of the spectrum from companies that had failed to shift and were your father's automobiles mm -hmm. uh, to companies that seemed to be keeping a current. And uh, from that base of research, we then uh, formed uh, some hypotheses, did some more research, and then mm -hmm. structured the book. Great, right. So kind of how did the, you know, 
uh, we, we love to talk about sample selection, right? Sort of go kind of, you said 100 companies, right? So how did you decide of who to go to? Was it who was around and uh, what sounded kind of interesting at the yeah, time? Like everything else, you know, uh -huh. we, wanted to, uh, <laughs> we wanted to cover the market, so yeah. we wanted to look at some big companies. We wanted to look at some small companies. Uh -huh. We looked at um, uh, a delicatessen. Yeah, so, yeah, I like uh, that and one. And <laughs> we wanted to look at some pr uh, public and private. And, uh, and part of it, we, we, w we went out with a pretty broad net, and uh, mm -hmm. sometimes we were able to... Uh, to get interviews, one of the interviews I wanted to get, or we wanted to get, was with uh, Lauren Michaels of Saturday Night Live, saying how how has he managed to keep uh, Saturday Night uh, Live you mm -hmm. know, relevant and mm -hmm. shifting ahead. And we had it set up a couple times, and his schedule got on hand and canceled it. So, you know, while we wanted certain right. uh, interviews, uh -huh. not sure. all of them came through. Yeah, absolutely. So the the subtitle of your book is "How the Best Companies Stay Relevant in a Fast Changing World," right? And I guess to me, there seem to be always kind of three broad questions, right? So first why do we fall behind in the first place, right? And how many, how do we realize that we have fallen behind? Uh, then is now that we know that we've fallen behind, what the heck can we do about this? <laughs> and then thirdly, right now that I know what I should be doing, how can I actually execute? Um, so, so maybe let's start by focusing on the first question, right? So why do firms fall behind and, and how do they recognize that they've fallen behind? And you have sort of a nice list of red flags in your book, right? Which I think kind of address this uh, very nicely. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about these uh, red flags that you're yeah, and that was actually one of the first findings of of the companies we spoke to. Uh, we were looking for the the, the magic sauce, the uh, you know the three things you could do: drink your coffee, have orange juice, and and uh, start the day off uh, exercising. But you know, more and more, most of the companies were struggling mm -hmm. uh, to keep. So there were far more examples of red flags and uh, challenges than there were magic potions. Mm -hmm. Drink this, and you'll feel better in the morning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know. Close-in ones were we described as you know constraints or red flags that were mostly imagined, and one of them we talked about is you know, the tendency to you know, important to realize that we're all to some extent sitting in Marty Crane's chair from the old Fraser show. You know, we are more <laughs> familiar with the comfortable, and mm -hmm. you know the general gravity we have to pull against is yesterday is easier to deal with than tomorrow, mm -hmm. <laughs> and. Um, Many of us operate on, you know, cruise control. That uh, you get into a routine, you start your day, you do a certain process, and companies and organizations are like that, as you know, too. And so, uh, you know, one of the first constraints is just realizing that human nature is going to cause many organizations to already be. I don't want to use too many sports analogs. Already be in the end zone <laughs> or in the twenty-yard line. We're not starting off in a good field position. Uh, if you're trying to shift ahead because human nature holds you back. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then, you know, the other ones were more real uh, in terms of red flags and uh, constraints, if you would, you know. Uh, you know one one uh, common one was something we refer to as the uh, golden handcuffs, and uh, many, many examples of that. But the notion that anything new, as you know, is going to, likely be less profitable than what you're doing today. Mm -hmm. yep. Yep. If you just look at the financial results mm -hmm. for Tesla mm -hmm. right now, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know, maybe they're not managing it perfectly, but you know, clearly it's easier to build a big uh, 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 SUV than it is to build uh, a Tesla. So, uh, and that was the case. We, we, um, we ended up uh, in many of the classic uh, companies that failed to shift behind one. We, we thought we knew the reason Kodak Fell apart. I had worked with Kodak earlier mm -hmm. in my career, and mm -hmm. I just assumed uh, 
they didn't see the train coming down the track and they yep. were run over. And, uh, but when we went back and spoke to many executives who were there at that tipping point, mm-hmm. the time from when they were what Apple is today, perhaps, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. until the time they uh, vaporized, uh, you know, one of the big things came up was the, the notion of the golden handcuffs and their inability inside the organization for many years leading up to the cliff they went off to make what we called asymmetrical bets. They couldn't take money from the film business, which was hugely profitable, yeah. phenomenally, and put it in digital because the only thing for sure is they moved $50 million from film um, to digital, the profit margin would go from X to zero, <laughs> mm-hmm. and, you know, the street wouldn't let them do it. And also the people who were you know, in the film business, getting their bonuses, saying, look, I just sold $100 million. I'm not giving it to, to Debbie down the hall. You know, it's my yeah. bonus. I made the numbers, and, you know, pay me. So many, many companies struggle with that notion of inability to make um, asymmetrical bets based on yeah. handcuffs. Yeah. So so one of these other uh, uh, red flags that you noted is uh, big on data, short on analysis. I like that one. Um, <laughs> tell us a bit more because, right, a lot, you know, big data obviously is sort of one of the key words that everyone is bending around. Um, so what's the red flag here? Yeah, like, it, like anything else, they, they're collecting, you know, many organizations collect much more data, uh, either intentionally or unintentionally, yeah, yeah. than they plan. But um, you need to have a culture that's comfortable looking at that data and knows how to see the... Uh, trees from the forest and knows how to use that. You know, we had a great conversation with the CMO of, uh, of Facebook, and you know, he talked a lot about that the culture at Facebook. We can talk about some of the other challenges mm-hmm. maybe later, but you know, they they are into the numbers, and mm-hmm. so when mm-hmm. they saw five years ago now, I think it was, or maybe more, that the number of people sharing pictures on Facebook was exponentially going up, and they had the data, it was not hard for them to make a bid for Instagram. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, in fact, the street said, are you crazy spending that much? But inside, they knew they had the data that said, this is where the world's going. You know, we need to, we need to shift for that. So, yeah. um, you know, part of it is collecting it, but part of it is um, internalizing it in an organization and then finally actioning it. Right. Have you seen some pattern across companies who do this well? Kind of what? What? How? Because every company wants to do that, right? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I think if 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 the data is being collected by the data folks or the marketing mm-hmm. research folks, uh, there's a high risk that uh, it's not connected to the central nervous system. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And but the only time you know people go into the data is when the sales numbers tip, and by then that's often as you. Uh, of course, now a lagging indicator by the sales. Yeah, yeah. By the time the sales numbers start sliding, it, it's usually actually another finding. It's too late, and mm-hmm. it's too late because another reality happens is that you know you got empty tanks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, another red flag you have, which I really like, is this idea about you know competing on price, not differentiation. So maybe you can elaborate a little bit on that one. You know, that goes back to some basic marketing theories that when you ask uh, many, many. Um, companies, you know, how's your marketing and how's your brand? And, um, you know, the, 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 the typical response is, oh, our awareness is, is great. People know our mm-hmm. name and people mm-hmm. recognize. Uh, and, uh, of course, awareness is important, but uh, lots of those companies fall into the uh, uh, problem of, you know, I know you, but you're nothing special. You're mm-hmm. nothing different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if I know you and I know you, you know, fly to L.A., and but so does three other airlines, uh, and they all have the same experience. Well, then of course, you know, when it comes time to purchase, there's no difference. Uh, but they all find the same 757s and 
I'll just take the cheapest fare. So yeah. oftentimes, you know, there's a uh, false sense of security is that we've got great awareness and everyone knows our jingle and our name. I, I look at Citibank uh, and uh, often wonder, um, you know, yes, it's lovely that they named a stadium here in New York City and the City Field now or the City Bike Program. I take City Bikes a lot, but I'm not sure when it comes to checking decisions if I would mm-hmm. pay, you know, $10 more for my checking account in City because they <clears throat> give me a bike to ride yeah. once in a while yeah. or I get a hot dog at the, sh- at the Met game. Mm-hmm. So let's talk a bit more about brands, because obviously the book is going beyond this, but, but this is sort of an interesting topic of this question, right? Have brands become more important or less important? You know, there's, of course, lots of debate on yeah. that topic. Yeah. Um, you know, the data that we've seen, I've seen, is that you know, brands, if you think about it, are shortcuts to help people make decisions. Mm-hmm. And as the world gets more complicated, as the world moves faster, I can't... Um, take apart my computer and uh, uh, certainly I can't put it back together once I take it apart but and determine what type of processor do I want to put in and what type of chip is best and what type of memory. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I, I need to make, to some extent, a brand decision saying which one helps me make that mm-hmm. choice. So mm-hmm. in a world of increasing clutter, um, one dimension of brand says they are still, if they're differentiated and clear. Um, great shortcuts and powerful ways to drive business, especially on a global basis. Mm-hmm. If the brand is only awareness and people don't have any differentiation and um, in, a, in a transparent world, of course, word of mouth is growing. You could have a great brand reputation, but if your word of mouth is uh, being sucked into an undertow, it doesn't matter if people have heard of you. Yeah. And it seems like but brands are being built differently nowadays. Is that right? Yeah, I think, of course, there used to be a uh, top-down. Um, in some ways, we're, we're going back to the future, uh, <laughs> to use that old movie, uh-huh. whereas brands used to be built because you would ask your neighbor over the backyard fence, you know, what do you recommend, or you'd ask yeah. the, the uh-huh. retailer who you knew uh, at, the grocery, at the town store. Um, and then we went through this long period of, you know, you didn't talk to anybody. You sat on your couch and somebody talked to you. And now we're sort of returning to the, the backside. You, you need to build it from the bottom up and the top down. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's really uh, there are a number of marketers who say, you know, Alan, we really have no uh, no marketing budget, but all we really need is a video that will go viral. Uh, can you just make one? <laughs> sure. Yeah, and I say, well, look, if you buy me a lottery ticket that wins, I'm happy to make uh-huh. you a, uh, a video. Of it. Yes. And, and, you uh-huh. know, and in the world of so much content out there, uh-huh. getting your story, your brand story across um, powerfully um, um, is uh, harder and harder. Yeah. And then even just like over the last five years, right, it has probably gotten much more difficult to yeah. kind of reach everyone out there. Um, but as you know, strong brands and focus go hand yeah. in hand, and uh, that also uh, helps companies. Yeah, uh, my sense is that that innovation of a peer-based reputation score, right, really is something. Again, right, an alternative way to at least get a certain part of a brand, right? So the brand as the the value of trust, right, can now be created in a somewhat different way and potentially less expensive way, right? Right. So, so you, you know, some of the foundation elements, but ultimately, yeah. which you know led to this book, you know, more and more companies are struggling to have something shareable. You know, the the, the strategy for social media is mm-hmm. disarmingly easy. Everyone says, "What? How do you win in social media?" Everyone knows 
the answer to that, which is you only share extraordinary. No one shares ordinary. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But you know, doing something extraordinary from a product point of view, a service point of view, an experience is more and more difficult, and uh, certainly easier to do it extraordinarily bad than <laughs> extraordinarily <laughs> good. Right. Uh, for those of you just tuning in, uh, you are listening to Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm Nikolai Zikolko, and I'm speaking with Ellen Edison, uh, author of the new book, Shift Ahead. Um, all right, so let's shift to the next question. So now I've, I've seen the red flags potentially, and uh, I've somehow recognized I've, I've fallen behind and the world has changed. Um, what next? I mean, how do I kind of anticipate what's sort of the right move that we should make? You know, the, the first thing is to try to uh, um, look around the corner and down the road uh, because one of the other challenges is that any shift often takes longer to make the new plan. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> and the sooner you start, yeah. uh, the better chance you have of reaching uh-huh. your destination. And so we spoke to lots of futurists, and as you know, if futurists are often right on what is hap- going to happen but often incorrect on when. when I was yeah, like uh-huh. looking back. It was yep. actually the 50th anniversary of 2001. And if you go on uh, on your uh, Netflix or Hulu mm-hmm. or wherever it is and watch that movie 50 years later, they were right about lots of the what's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they had uh-huh. iPads. They, you know, mm-hmm. they had uh, mm-hmm. artificial intelligence, computers, Hal, talk to you. They were just off a little bit on yep. the when. Uh, and that, it's like that in many, many predictions. There was a famous Apple film that uh, was produced in 1984, uh, and they talked about the future uh, of work, and they had somebody uh, using an iPad way back then, mm-hmm. uh, talking mm-hmm. to the iPad like Siri. Mm-hmm. It's just they were off. So, you know, first piece is to, you know, try to get what, but it's better to start early and be a little wrong. It'd be better to be too early than too late. Once you're too late, you can't catch up. Yeah. If you're too early, you can recover. Right. So can you give us a couple of good examples here so of, of firms that did this well? Uh, because your book is like full of examples. Which is really yeah, lovely. You know, the, uh, the, the usual suspects did it pretty well um, uh, in terms of um, seeing what's down the road. I think you know, FedEx has been a pretty good example of a company that has shifted its business, uh, continuing to shift, and they're pretty in tune with where things are going. But the other, the other setup to what you need to do is also to make sure you take a good inventory of what your strengths and weaknesses are, mm-hmm. your culture, your DNA. Because many, many organizations say, oh, uh, we're Barnes & Noble. We're going we're gonna to get into technology. We're going to make an iPad. <laughs> yeah. And it could have been the right answer. It probably was the right answer. But they didn't have the strength or skill set. Uh, uh, and so often the important thing is saying, where do I want to go? And, and do I have the DNA? Do I have the strength? Right. And if you don't have it, you better get it. We had the great story of Hasbro, um, and uh, spoke to the CEO at length. And you know, he came out of the this tiny division of Hasbro back then that was their film division. And the toy company almost revolted, saying, "How can you put somebody who runs, you know, a, a tiny division of Hasbro from Hollywood in charge of a toy maker?" And sure enough, you know, they he was able to bring enough of that DNA from entertainment and transform. Hasbro. So today, it's the uh, only toy company that's still surviving. Mattel is uh, on life support, and lots have gone away. So, you know, part of it is um, linking. You know, you're often better. Of course, as everyone in strategy knows you're better to play to your strengths than you are to try to transform a weakness. So it's another challenge that Kodak had. They, they mm-hmm. wanted to be in the digital business. We found there was a, a large board meeting when they were on the 
cusp of deciding what to do. And half the board wanted to remain a chemical company or stay a chemical or yeah. become a chemical. And half the board wanted to be a digital company. They chose digital, which was the right marketplace answer, perhaps. But their DNA, their strengths were they were a chemical sales company. Yeah. And they sold off the pharmaceutical division. They sold off a company which is now a billion-dollar company in, uh, I believe it's Tennessee, called Eastern Chemical. But, you know, so they had the intention of being a digital company, but they didn't have the strength yeah. or the DNA. Right. Yeah, and as you said, right, sort of probably the larger the company, the more difficult, right, it is yeah, to— Yeah, you have to think of it as, you know, you, you, most of the time you're, you're turning a battleship around, mm -hmm. not a little— motorboat yeah and uh, that sort of uh, what, what maybe makes ibm such an almost unique example right yeah, so i think ibm was a great example because yeah. you know they talked a lot about of their culture has always been about solving business problems or delivering the word think yeah and it, yeah so even though it's been a very painful long journey they have been able to continuously transform and move away from making the majority of their money selling huge mainframes to making more and more money now selling services. Um, unlike other companies that have been in the same quantity, we spoke to the folks at the uh, former folks at Xerox, and mm -hmm. uh, again, they're writing the news now. But, um, you know, they, they had a business model based on selling equipment, and they tried to get into the consulting business. They bought a consulting business. They couldn't merge the DNA of the company, now splitting it apart again. And so, you know, if your core purpose is what we call an evergreen purpose, which will constantly adjust to what's gone in the marketplace as opposed to what you make that day, you have a better shot of shifting ahead. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, now, another uh, example you have in your book is uh, sort of a bit uh, not-for-profit, right? You looked at the uh, Greenwich Public Library. Um, kind of was an interesting way of kind of thinking about, again, libraries uh, feeling like they're almost coming extinct, but then, so what do you do, right? Uh, so what were some of the experiences you got from that? Yeah, uh, so, so um, you know, I, I, um, I was lucky enough to remember way back when I was in high school studying at the, uh, at the Greenwich Library. It was a mm -hmm. place to go for uh, uh, quiet and also uh, information. But I began to wonder, you know, who ever goes to a library anymore? Mm -hmm. you no know, one rents books, and uh, they try to rent DVDs, but you know, no one. And so I met with the folks at, uh, we, uh, at the Greenwich Library, and you know, they, to your point earlier, they they said, what is our purpose here? Mm -hmm. what, what what business are we in? Are we in the business of, you know, providing books and reading materials, periodicals, or what, what's our what's our purpose in Greenwich? And they had a pretty innovative idea. I guess not six, seven years ago, of saying we want to be the hub of Greenwich. We want to be core to Greenwich. And to that, they then began to explore what's important to the residents of Greenwich. Mm -hmm. And yes, having a place to get a book was so important. And, but um, making a, a place that you could start a business, creating sort of a WeWork environment, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. creating a tech desk that would help people that had uh, uh, an Android phone and a Mac computer. You mm -hmm, know? Mm -hmm. Real problem. You know, most people struggle with technology, and when your teenage son goes off to college, yep. your tech department leaves. <laughs> and you know, yeah, you know, if you have everything Apple, you can maybe line up at the Genius Bar. But most people have, uh, you know, a goulash set of technology, yeah. uh, from Amazon stuff to <laughs> to Apple. And so, you know, setting up a tech desk at the Greenwich Library, you know, all of a sudden made it made it up. So. Um, lots of you, you go through the Greenwich Library, and you know, there are some people pulling out books and novels, but lots of people, you, you know, sitting in terminals, clearly doing business. Mm -hmm.
So you linked to that. I mean, you said what firms should be doing is, of course, trying to kind of anticipate right where the future will lead us. Um, again, what are some practice that practices that you've seen inside firms that uh, seem to be working well? Uh, how do they keep track of what's going on? Yeah, there, there were some pretty basic things. We had a number of conversations, uh, and I was lucky enough uh, to have them as a client with the Marriott Corporation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, part of what um, made them successful in a previous uh, generation when you talk to folks who worked with the Bill Marriott was the saying that Bill Marriott's feet never touched his desk. You know, he was always out in the restaurants, in the hotel, talking to customers, talking to the uh, their associates. And, you know, by and large, companies that, you know, keep uh, what's been referred to as the founder's mentality. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you know, one of the researchers we spoke to, uh, Paco Underhill, is an and cultural anthropologist and does a lot of research on companies. And he told me that, you know, one of his favorite sayings was, you know, find the office furthest away from the customer, and that's where you find the leadership of a company that's about to be left behind. <laughs> uh <-huh. laughs> and... Um, and, and you know that turned out to be the case in many. So you know, get out of the, get out of, you know, let your feet touch the ground, press the flesh. You know, yes, you can read the research, look at the data, but there's no substitute for getting out and having the organization get out and be outside in as opposed to inside out. Yeah. So it gets us sort of to the third question, I guess, of, of trying to implement change, right? So. Uh, we've realized we've got a problem. We've now brainstormed. We're trying to predict where the future is going. We have some ideas. Now we actually have to execute, right? And so already talked a little bit about the problems that Kodak had, right? Because they somehow, some sense, saw that digital was coming, but had a hard time kind of overcoming some of the kind of framing effects that they had. What are some of the kind of, again, lessons on the execution side that you've been able to see? Yeah, a lot of it was about uh, uh, things that in hindsight, seemed pretty easy, but really hard to do. Mm -hmm. um, one of the, the great conversations we had with was Tom Friedman, and he talks a lot about the, in the notion of average is over. And lots of companies a, try to do too many things and do them averagely, mm. or have sort of a check the box. We've done this, we've done this. And going back to our point of word of mouth, no one shares ordinary. People only share extraordinary. So you know, step one to, is you've got to focus. Uh, and pick two or three things or one or two ways to to move ahead uh, that you can execute well. So focus is, is the first thing. You know, mm -hmm. d Don't try to do three things. Part of the reason meant Toys R Us fell apart for many, many reasons. But one of them was you know, half the company wanted to compete with Walmart and Amazon, and half the company wanted to compete on the high end as a value-added toy retailer. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they you know, parallel passed it, passed it past it, and um, they failed on both counts. Yeah. So, you know, part of it is is um, is the importance of uh, focus, and most of the successful organizations were able to say, we're going to go in this direction, and um, if we focus, we'll have a better shot of ex executing well. Mm. So what's the uh, role of leadership in this? And so I've heard you and your just talk about the CEO of Marriott, um, but uh, there's always going to have this big debate, right? Does it has to be top down? It has to be bottom up. Um, again, what what have you seen? Well, there's no magic potion for that either. But the mm -hmm. best leaders tended to have a couple things in common: their organizations that shifted ahead successfully. One is we we you know they, lots of them had what we 
called peripheral vision. Not you know, Many, many companies play a lot of tennis and not enough golf. Mm. What do I mean by that? They are totally preoccupied by what their competitors right in front of their nose are doing. I, when I was a brand manager at Unilever, I was totally fixated on, yes, we looked at the customer. What did Colgate do? What did PNG do? We got to do. And lots of it. When I worked with Pepsi, Pepsi was fixated on Coke. Mm-hmm. And yes, it's mm-hmm. important to beat the competitors in your space. But as your listeners and you know, of course, that Lots of lots of disruption doesn't come from you know right, right in right. front of you. Yep. It comes from uh-huh. the side. So some of the best leaders were able to look out and have uh, peripheral vision. Uh, the former president of NYU, John Sexton, had a bunch of that. He saw where the world was going, what was happening in education in the macro sense. Not so much was how in NYU was going to be Columbia and yeah. Manhattan or you know, uh-huh. or Wharton in Philadelphia. So uh, or Penn. So uh, you know, peripheral vision was one characteristic. Another was the ability to make a decision and take some risk. Mm-hmm. You know, oftentimes companies study and study and study and say left and the answer is never a hundred percent this, zero this. Most of the times companies are facing fifty one forty nine mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh if they get into analysis paralysis or they say let's do both, they tend uh to not successfully shift ahead. So a good leader is able to make a decision and, and and stomach some risk because the biggest wins go with some risk. Mm-hmm. And risk aversion is another barrier in most companies for trying something yeah. new. So you mentioned the peripheral vision, um, and that's clearly something that our listeners are very uh, interested in. <laughs> and so my, my personal question to you, you know, how do you keep up peripheral vision for yourself, right? Uh, kind of we're living in this world that's evolving and you know, you're studying uh, brands and you want to, of course, uh, be up to speed on what's happening to brands. So how, how do you keep your peripheral vision up? Yeah, I'll answer that in two ways. You know, uh-huh. One is when I went for my first job out of business school, I went to uh, a large ad agency, Ogilvy & Mather, New York, and I went through the interview process and went through 12 interviews. And you finally meet the CEO. Uh-huh. And I went into his office and I was all ready to talk about market segmentation and media strategy and whatever else I had prepped too much for. Uh-huh. <laughs> and his first question is, Alan, tell me about the last book you've read, the last show you've seen, and the last movie you've been to, and why you found them interesting or not. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, of course, I was you know, not really ready for that. Right. <laughs> I mumbled through that, and a year yep. later, I said, you know, Ken, why did you... He said he, he wanted people inside Ogilvy that were in touch with what was going on. Yeah. Uh-huh. And so that stuck with me. So t- even today, I, I try to look at the fringes. I travel a lot. Teaching, of course, you know, if you're not talking one way to your students and listening to them is a great way to stay fresh. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I mm-hmm. learn a lot from my kids. Yep. Um, you know, just getting out from behind the screen and getting out of your bubble. Yeah, great. Well, Ellen, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, that was really Talk great. Thank you for inviting um, me. Absolutely. Thank you. Uh, we need to take a short break now. Uh, when we come back, uh, I'll be joined by Bob Conlon, president and CEO of Navex Global, a legal compliance software company. This is Mastering Innovation on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM 111. I'll be right back with you. For more guest interviews, check out our Wharton Business Radio Highlights podcast on iTunes and Google Play. 